Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Those frames are also sometimes comfort zones, but sometimes you can gently be pushed outside of those boundaries and you would be sometimes really happy that you did, that you elevated something by doing it. So I don't think it's always as set in stone. I think everything can be challenged. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. This week we're joined by Espen Wilhelms, drummer in Swedish heavy band Monolord. Your Time to Shine, the band's fifth album, was released last year on Relapse Records, and we dive into it from his perspective as a musician and producer. Your Time to Shine was his first recording in Studio Berserk, which he took over about a year ago. We also touch on touring during the pandemic and the Doom label, which is often how the media characterized Monolord. Espen has been editing, mixing, and mastering Heavy Hops episodes since July 2021, and we've had a lot of great conversations during that process and it's a joy to record and share one of our conversations with you let's dive and get heavy espen wilhelms welcome to heavy hops it's a pleasure to have you on the show thank you nice to be here I want to start by focusing on your fifth album, Your Time to Shine, which you recorded at your studio that you took over maybe a year ago as of this recording. And it's the first one that obviously you recorded there and it was your first recording in that space. So lots of cherries were popped in that experience. I want to know about both sort of how you ended up with the studio, but then also what the experience was like with the recording itself. So let's start with the studio. Like, how did you kind of end up with making the decision that, hey, I want to be a studio owner? Yeah, <laughs> it really wasn't that planned in that sense. It was kind of in the middle of the results of the pandemic and on the side of playing music, being a touring musician, I'm a freelance audio tech and I, and I usually work conferences because I got to pay the bills. So that's a great day job. And obviously everything disappeared at the same time in that business as well. So I was kind of out of work and didn't know what to do. And through a contact, I heard about this studio. It's really close to where I live, which you know you've been here and a friend of mine that works in another studio told me that the guy running this he was about to semi-retire and move to the south of sweden and yeah build a small project studio instead he wanted to find someone that could take it over and continue running it as a studio basically so it wasn't advertised at all he was just like sniffing around a little bit <laughs> through contacts and i felt like hey this this sounds interesting it's a great house i love the house again you've been here you've seen the house it's an old girl school from 1880 ish i think that then a hundred years later became this culture house with lots of rehearsal spaces a venue cafe bar restaurant in the bottom and then this studio on the top floor so it's a beautiful space it's right in the middle of 
the part of Gothenburg I love the most. So I felt like, I gotta check it out. I gotta go see what this is. Also thinking that there's no chance in hell that I'm gonna be able to take over a studio right now. I'm out of work and we can't tour with the band and everyone is struggling and the world is upside down. But I mean, being curious, I gotta see what this is. So I went here, had a coffee with the guy running it and it pretty quickly went from there to negotiating, taking it over. It's like, hey, maybe we should do this. And me and my partner, Osa, we discussed it a lot and we both felt like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Taking over a studio that exists is super cozy, kind of chaotic and uh, it has a lot of dents in it, <laughs> to put it mildly. But I love that. It's in a good sense. So we felt that we, we got to try and we agreed on a deal finally and I took it over January 1st last year. So one year ago, yeah. Which was nerve-wracking. It was so incredibly scary. I mean, having all these loans to get this studio and what now and what will the future bring and all that. But it's been a great year. I mean, I've had more clients than I thought I would have. Most of them online, obviously, because everyone's at home recording stuff because no one can tour. So that's been great. But yeah, as you said, the first real thing happening here was recording the last Monolord album. It was amazing. I mean, we've been working on that album a few months prior to this, so we didn't know about the studio when we started to work. So we, we actually had a week booked in another studio to record the drums, but we felt like we got to do it here. We got to use this space now that we have this space. The band also moved into the big room here. So Monolord resides in the studio as well. So this is now also the Monolord cave. It's it's where we have our gear. It's where we rehearse. So we're also permanently here. So we felt that we got to be here. We got to record the album here just to try how that feels. So we spent four weeks recording the album. And four weeks for us is like an eternity we never had that kind of time like set aside working weekdays even coming here on monday morning and going home in the afternoon working normal days having the weekends off then coming back the next one day is like it's insane luxury for that reason alone it felt so good working here because of the pandemic we've had a lot of time to prepare for the album so we had a lot of time to rehearse to really refine the songs the way we wanted to represent them which you usually never do as a touring band you kind off tour and then you start working on the next album and you don't get to tour on the material you just have to write it and then rehearse it good enough and then record it and it has to be amazing and then you go on tour again hopefully but now we in a sense get to tour on the album <laughs> we get to play the material so much that it's like lust filled more than any other album we've recorded and i think that for monolord a band that really plays in the pocket as well having your studio also be a rehearsal space is an interesting proposition because now you can record with the same sort of dynamics that you rehearse with. And if you're playing like without a click and you're being more sort of like fluid with what it is that you're writing, being in the same space is probably like highly productive for the reasons that you mentioned that are practical in terms of being able to be on a schedule, to not be subject to, I have to, you know, run into this place where I'm paying by the hour or paying by the session, you can take your time a little bit. And I think like patience is sort of a theme that I hear with Monolord's music in general. And so it makes sense that from another side of it, that that becomes sort of an overriding theme with how you're doing what you do, not just what you do. I guess so. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, I haven't thought about our process as being patient at all, actually. None of us are really patient. We're like super eager and like squirrels all the time. Hey, let's do the next thing. But it felt good to have a lot of time, at least, to really get where we wanted to be. So, yeah. For you writing then in the same place that you rehearse and like taking all of it over at the same sort of time, I mean, that's a lot of stuff going on. And so did it have any sort of bearing in the material as it sort of manifested on tape? You mentioned that you'd had a lot of stuff written and that you already had studio time booked elsewhere. And so this became, you know, a new opportunity. But being in a space that was yours, did that alter any of the material or the thoughts that guided the songwriting? I don't know. It's a really good question, but I, I don't know. First of all, Thomas writes all the material. So he's basically writing everything at home and then he brings it to wherever we rehearse and then we make it our own, to put it roughly. <laughs> but when I took over the studio, we were already done with all the pre-production and everything. So it was already in place before we moved in here. So after we moved in here, it was basically just rehearsing. Not much more than that. But we'll see on the next album if it affects that. I think it affected it in the way of performance because we had the luxury of, even though we have said, book these four weeks for this, it's my studio. It wouldn't have cost anything extra to make it five weeks or the studio itself wouldn't cost more. And that put a lot of pressure off. We've always worked that way, but in between day jobs. So it's been like... <laughs> doing everything else and then recording an album on top of that during a couple of months and then hopefully make that patchwork work in some sense. But now we really could devote everything, all the energy to actually recording and performing. So that was a really long answer on something completely different, but... <laughs> it all makes sense to me. We'll talk about drumming because as I mentioned at the top of the show, in the intro, you're the first drummer that I've had on the show and I feel as though I've been subconsciously discriminatory against rhythm sections of bands. So let's dive into it. So I found your drumming to be particularly expressive on your time to shine. I think that you showed a level of patience and also an ability to play in the pocket as you always do, but there's a level of fluidity and ability around the kit and confidence and expressiveness within how you were doing that and your interplay with Thomas and Mika the guitarist and bassist, respectively. How did you sort of approach this set of material from a percussive side? As I always do, is the boring reply, but thank you, most of all, thank you. I'm really happy that's how you hear my drumming on this album. But I think the difference with this as well is time. We really had time to feel the songs more than think them, because, like I said, very often you're really pressed for time. You don't have much time to finalize an album. When you're in a recording session, you're very often in the position that you focus way more on playing correct than playing with feel. And you have to find that balance in the studio. And that's the hardest thing to do because you usually don't have the time to really get the music in the backbone and really know, really feel how the song is going. So you sit there like, oh yeah, and then in three bars, this thing is coming up. And then after that, I think it's the chorus and then we have the thing and then there's a break and the, yeah. And this time I couldn't basically forget that and just go by feel because we've played the songs so much. But speaking of how I approach drumming, that's an episode in itself, I guess, or with any instrument. But I think the best way to describe it would be that I've always 
been inspired by band musicians more than just instrumentalists. When it comes to drummers, I've loved good drummers that are perfect in the band they're playing in. I'm not that interested in like being the super technical perfect drummer. It's more like this person in this band is just perfect. White Stripes, she's called Meg, right? Amazing drummer in White Stripes. Is I mean, no one else could do it the way that she did. There are a lot of drummers, a lot of examples on that, and that's how I approach drumming, basically. The same thing in Monolord. I always aspire to be the best Monolord drummer there is. To try to play with Mika and Thomas, try to feel how the drumming, how my piece of the puzzle fits the best way, and how it doesn't fit at the same time in a creative way, because there has to be some friction for it to be interesting, I feel. That's usually how I approach drumming. I usually play the thing and I get the song into the back of my head and then from there I try to find what am I missing? I'm missing something. I'm missing a feeling. How do I get to that feeling? And I try a million things out and by chance or by deliberate focus I find what I like and I play that. It's not so technical and I'm listening to the whole picture as much as I can. That's how I approach music overall. That's how I approach if I record someone else. It's the exact same approach. I try to inspire people to listen to everyone else but themselves in the band because no one does <laughs> and that almost always elevates the total production or the total sound or it elevates everything if you start listening to the to the whole picture not only oh this riff is so great and i have the best sound by myself it might not fit but it's the greatest sound i think that's counterproductive when it comes to an overall sound and feel You talked about cohesion in a sense of playing to match what everyone is doing in a certain way or to be a very highly integrated part of that fabric. But then you also alluded to friction in some way. Can you give listeners an example of what that friction would be on your time to shine? Oh, oh a specific example on that. I think it's more like a mindset than specific examples, but one friction, one constant friction that's extremely frustrating and that I also love at the same time with us specifically in this band. I've said this so many times, but we come from different places in this band. We have different frames of reference with almost everything, music included, and this band is where our references overlap. That's where we meet in that little Venn diagram. And that friction is one of those frictions that I really enjoy here. I don't play drums the way that Mika would play drums if he played drums, and vice versa and same thing with thomas guitar playing and singing we come from different places in that as well and we find the overlapping spot between us and i think that friction is that's fucking magic <laughs> it really is because it's not coming from the same place with the exact same frames of reference it's coming from different spaces and you need to find where do we meet where do we agree on this song or this feeling And when you find that, it can be extremely hard to find sometimes, but when you find that, it's kind of, that's amazing. That's the best feeling. But I don't think I have a really, I got to think about it, but I don't think I have a perfect example of that double kick thing there or that cowbell is friction. It's not really in that way, in that sense. It's more like an overall feeling that's kind of drag and pull at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> the cowbell and the double bass in I'll Be Damned, for example. I guess like you could look at that as, I wouldn't call it friction, like to me as a listener, more elements that you've had at your disposal in the past as a capable drummer, but you've chosen to not use them for whatever reason in the manner that you've chosen to use them. It's not as though 
they are things that didn't exist in your world. They were there. It's just that was the moment to pull that lever. Yes, I think that's it. That the friction that I'm perceiving as a friction might not be perceived as a friction on the other end. But it might have been something that I got to try this out. It feels kind of wrong in this context, but it feels kind of right at the same time. I got to try it out and see if it works. When it works, when that wrong thing works, it's great. And I think we'll probably end up talking about some of that in a little bit when we talk about like labeling and characterization and stuff like that, because it sounds like some of that may also inform perceptions and ideas and shaping like why that feels like a weird thing to do. But sticking with sort of this drummer's perspective, because I think that it's sort of interesting that you are drumming and then also sort of producing and engineering uh, because they are very much sort of the backbone of music. Without drumming, you don't have rock music. Without production, you don't have music that I can listen to, that I can get piped into my ears. For you then, from a drummer and then as like a sound engineer, do you see any correlations between those experiences in some way? Yeah, because I don't see them as different, <laughs> really. I completely get what you're asking. And I think that it's kind of the same thing as I talked about before. It's the same approach for me, and it's overlapping. So in this role, recording this album, it was kind of just a fluid process. It wasn't like, now I'm on the drum seat and I'm playing drums, and now I'm in the sound engineer seat and pressing the buttons. It's kind of all facets of the same thing. And I think for me, that's a key factor to really the goal of what you want to record and represent. It's not two different things. Nothing is when it comes to making an album as I view it. All the pieces, they really fit together and they are really strongly connected. And you need to appreciate that and realize that, I think, to be able to reach the goal of whatever you're reaching for. A good example would be that someone might ask me to mix an album and then record it themselves. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But sometimes there is a perception of that it doesn't matter that much how that album is recorded because I will fix it in the mix. I can do whatever I can with the material I'm getting, but recording the album or even before that, writing the music, dialing in the band sound on the backline, everything is part of that process. And I feel the same with being in two roles at the same time. I actually don't feel like being two roles. It's just me doing different things, but different facets, different sides of the same thing. It sounds like you've just got your paws on more elements of the recording, not just the performance side, but now also being able to view it behind the desk by yourself. Yeah, but I'm never by myself. I mean, a lot of people think that I've produced all the albums. I haven't. We produce everything, all three of us together. We're really deeply in the process, all three of us in the music. So we all produce the albums. And when I mix, I physically sit by myself and mix, but I always update Thomas and Mika. And they're always part of the process, which is also a key factor in the albums sounding the way they do. I'm not the one just dictating, this is going to sound like this. I'm a sound engineer. I know how it goes. There there are a lot of opinions and there should be in this band and the way the process we are having, which is a weird fucking process. I mean, I think every band has their own kind of strange animal and ours is as strange as any. You're listening to Heavy Hops. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. Be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorched Tundra Festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, 
Find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode with the nerds in your life, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. You've played with Thomas and Mika in past projects as well. The dynamic that you described, has it changed over time at all? Or are you still sort of the same people, just in a more evolved state as musicians together? It's changed a lot, mainly because we've toured so much, I think. We spend so much time together, so we don't spend as much time together when we're off tour. Still friends, obviously. (laughs) But the social dynamics of the band have changed a lot since the beginning of the band, and I think it would for anyone. When you've spent four weeks on the road with uh, two other people, you don't prioritize meeting them for coffee the day after we come home, usually. But at the same time, we're absolutely the same people, but more of who we were before that's how i feel it at least but that's my feeling that's my perspective we often get the question about the albums that this album is really a big leap in this or that direction from the previous album and while i get it and i i see where that's coming from that's not how i feel it i always feel like all the albums we've done has been a natural step from the previous one it's not been like a deliberate step to any direction it's just been us playing and working and evolving hopefully and refining hopefully hopefully what we think we are. Let's shift for a moment and talk a little bit about touring and playing. You had done a support tour in Europe with your time to shine in early winter, obviously like a pretty interesting time to tour. How did you sort of feel undertaking a tour during the pandemic? I I felt everything at once. It felt so incredibly weird. It it was really strange. But we were also really stoked to finally be able to play live again. I mean, we did the tour knowing that cancellations might happen and probably will happen. And at the end of the tour, a quarter of the tour was cancelled. But still, the shows that did happen, they were great. They were amazing. I mean, we've been longing for being on stage again, playing music again, and the people coming to the shows felt the same, apparently, because it was wild shows. (laughs) It was really good. We played in the Netherlands, and a few days later, they closed the country for shows. And then we played UK, and we left the UK. Same thing there, they closed the country. So it's like we had another wave of closing because of the pandemic just a few days behind us on the entire tour. It was strange. It was a really strange experience. And it really was the feeling of being in a bubble in the middle of everything, kind of being isolated while traveling. That's a really strange experience. Experience. That's really, that's odd. And not meeting people after the shows, that sucks. Going off stage like, hey, see you next year. <laughs> not being able to shake hands at the merch booth or whatever is like, that part sucked. That was really frustrating. I really love meeting people, but we couldn't because we had to consider not being infected at all. We couldn't afford that. So we really needed to stay isolated all the way through. You had left sort of before the onset of Omicron, like all that was happening kind of while you were on tour. And in some cases it was following you in other cases, it was ahead of you. But for the fans that were at the shows, you had mentioned that it was a pretty like intense experience, like that you were interpreting as a musician. I would imagine for a lot of people 
this was probably on the early side for them as seeing club shows again because there were so many restrictions in Europe during the summer for club experiences and things like that. And so this was like maybe the first club show a lot of people had seen. And so what was the experience like performing for people? And was it any different than what you had experienced when touring in the past? Yeah, it was different in that exact sense. People just like super eager to see live shows. And just like you said, it was the first show in two years for many of the people that came to the shows and the first shows for us in two years. So yeah, that was a big difference. A lot of built up anticipation from both sides, I'd say. And then everything closed down again just after it's just like, (laughs) it really was just like sticking your head above water and then dive back down again. It's wild, but also at the same time, there's people that you are now cemented with this particular memory of this particular time with people and they may carry it for a long time. That could be a really sort of interesting imprint that you have on these people's lives. Absolutely. Same for us. It's been a really wild experience on all levels. Shifting a little bit again and continuing with the idea of touring and getting on the road again, you're going to be coming to North America to support your time to shine. You're bringing Fire Breather as well from Gothenburg, two, three pieces on the road, which is pretty exciting. I guess for people that may not know too much about what it takes to get into the U.S. and you can be as cordial as you'd like. and It's not all interesting, but I think it is important for people to understand the scope that it's not like you're just getting on a plane and coming here. So uh, since you've done this before, I guess, what has your experience been like taking all the steps to be approved to play in the U.S.? Yeah, the visa process. (laughs) That's a well-known experience for European bands getting to the U.S. As far as I know for U.S. bands getting to Europe, you basically just come here and you pay a small fee, I think, and then you're good to go. But for us coming to the U.S., it's <laughs> it's a process that costs, for us, it costs around, it's going to be closer to uh, $6,000 and it's going to be around three or four months of uh, processing, of work, a lot of work. Most Mostly on the management side for us, luckily, poor manager. There are so many steps and nothing makes sense. But (laughs) when you finally get approved, the first big one that says you're approved to finally apply one more time. One of the steps that's kind of doesn't really make sense. (laughs) Then you fill out this massive form online. Individually, you pay money and then you can book an appointment, an interview at the embassy in the country you're in. And it doesn't matter where that embassy is. So if you're at the other end of the country that doesn't matter you can't phone it in you can't go to a consulate you have to go to the embassy so traveling across the country for us to Stockholm to go to this interview which is replying to three questions during a couple of minutes in a window at the embassy and then that's that and then you get your passport back with a visa two weeks later and then you're good to go so it's a massive process it costs so much money and it's getting worse it's getting more expensive by the year and it's getting more extensive with the documentation and everything you need to provide. It really is hard to explain how extensive the process is, but it's insane. It's completely insane. So you need to be at a level where you can do at least two tours in the US to make it work. If you can't, you're going to lose money on it. 
I appreciate the level of disclosure. I think it is important for us to kind of understand that, you know, one of the reasons why we don't see bands coming over to the U.S. in the way that we may have 15, 20 years ago is because it's harder and it's more expensive. And in some respect, I think that it obviously limits the choices that we have in how we're going to experience live music. It obviously financially limits bands that want to tour globally. It hurts venues too here to an extent that, hey, if I historically could have done, you know, 25 shows in a month of like 30 days, because, you know, there's five international packages that aren't coming through anymore. All of a sudden, I'm missing out on, you know, that many ticket sales, the city or local governments missing out on that tax revenue that's going to come in. There's a lot of negative consequences to that, not just on the sort of human experience level that we think about when we think of the fans, but also on the business side, where I would imagine there's an element of trying to protect talent in this country, but it doesn't protect business necessarily. And I don't know if it entirely protects talent because talent grows by experience and experiencing. Exactly. So yeah, I completely agree. It doesn't protect talent at all. Quite the contrary. I mean, as you say, experience and experiencing. Absolutely. Seeing other bands, seeing bands coming from abroad. And same goes here. I mean, it would really suck if the only bands we could see here were Swedish bands. It doesn't matter if they're great. I want to see bands from all over the world. And I guess people in the US want that as well, of course. So yeah, it's weird. It's a process that quite honestly doesn't make sense. You just have to go through it to kind of just accept the fact that okay it's time we got to do it to be able to get there so yeah but it's frustrating it's really frustrating it's not easy it takes a lot of time and money and a lot of planning so you can't be spontaneous about it either i mean you it, it wouldn't be possible for you to call us and say hey a month from now i have a thing would you consider coming to do a thing with me here we couldn't it wouldn't be possible even if we wanted to so yeah it's limiting in every respect another sort of topic i'm curious about from you is something about the friction thing that we were talking about earlier when I see Monolord being discussed in the media, the band is characterized as a doom band, and that's a label that people put on you to make it convenient and easy to talk about you. How do you feel about that? I'm okay with it. I don't consider us being a doom band. I mean, when we first started the band, we put doom <laughs> under the name on Facebook just to kind of give people a vague idea of what it was. But that's not because we felt like we're a doom band. We got to play doom. And it's just to give a vague idea. And once we felt like we've defined what we were more, we removed that. And we don't ever really present ourselves as a doom band or sludge band or stoner band. I really am fine with whatever people want to call us as long as we get to play the music we like and in the way we like it we have a really strong feeling what the monolord sound is and what the vibe of monolord is and we work within those frames and we also constantly redefine and move those frames so slapping just a doom label on it i feel it's restricting for the listener to be honest i don't mind it i don't care even <laughs> it's fine by me if it's under doom at a record store i'm completely fine with that but expecting it to be pure doom it's not i think it's something else as a musician and then being labeled that i think you've made your case on that do you think that it's restricting in some respects in terms of like how the fans are perceiving you 
Uh, yes and no, but mostly no. I mean, people that know us know that we really don't pay much attention to those labels, that we just play monolord music. <laughs> and people that like us but want to call us a doom band, they like the fact that we play doom untraditionally. <laughs> In their ears. No, I don't feel it restricting, really. I just said I felt it restricting, but I don't think I do after all, because there will always be Puritans, whatever genre you're playing. There will always be Puritans that think you use the wrong instrument or have the wrong hair length or the wrong record collection or whatever. It doesn't matter. There will always be those keyboard warriors online that think that, oh, you did this the wrong way. This is not true because this and this band did it this way and you're just fake. And that's fine. <laughs> that's completely fine. I've also been 17 and angry, so that's that's okay. But I'm old now and don't give a fuck anymore, so it's it's all good. <laughs> it is one of these things where I spent a fair amount of time writing in the past and it was always a very hard thing to describe music. The challenge was to not use a label like Doom Band and then to not describe the music in terms of by referencing other bands. That was sort of the, if you have written a good review, it was by channeling other sorts of experiences or sounds or by actually using adjectives, by framing it in terms of what other people have done. Which is hard, of course. I understand that completely and I really respect that. But I also understand why people would use a genre label like, hey, it's a doom band, just to give some idea to someone. If someone want to tell their friend about Monolord and they want to use some simple way to describe us, I completely get why they would use doom. It can be useful that way, maybe, but I'm not that interested in it. And that might also be why I don't care that much if we're labeled one way or the other. It's okay. It doesn't really affect us. It doesn't affect what we do or the direction we're taking or the music we're playing. We play the music we want to play, regardless of what label people slap on us. Shifting into like how you take on a project to a certain extent that isn't monolord. Ideas about a genre can be imposed upon an artist or a musician, and they react to it in a number of different ways. Some artists, uh, such as yourself, you described where you don't really care as much about what those labels are, and that you are creating music that makes you happy and that gives you satisfaction and that challenges you. Now, there are bands that do like the boxes and that do like to adhere to a certain sort of production style or to certain principles that are like uh, laid out in genre manifestos, we could say. So it's like a different sort of pegging that they're on. And so you may not have had a project come to you that's like that, but they're out there. And so I'm kind of curious as to how you would or have sort of negotiated that as a producer. I think I would reason the same way. I would listen to, as I always do, I would ask for demos of the music. If they come to me and say, we're a doom band, we want to record it this way and we have these references and we, we want to work within those frames i would respect that completely and i would also and and but <laughs> i would also come with suggestions if i hear something i think would elevate what they're doing that might be outside of the frame that they want to be inside of because i get the feeling that those frames are also sometimes comfort zones it's comfortable to be inside of a zone and call yourself this or that but sometimes you can 
can gently be pushed outside of those boundaries and you would be sometimes really happy that you did, that you elevated something by doing it. So I don't think it's always as set in stone. I think everything can be challenged. I think that's the best reply to that. But I respect it, of course. At the same time, I mean, if a grindcore band comes and want to record a grindcore album within the absolute grindcore context and nothing else, I would absolutely respect that. It's a balance, like everything. As someone who is not a musician, but who talks to musicians and thinks about it a lot, I think sometimes I'll put myself in the media is that we like to impose ideas on musicians. And I think how musicians sort of internalize that and what they sort of do with that or don't do anything with is kind of interesting because it's its own dynamic that can be self-perpetuating and you know you can throw like tastemakers in this too. I sometimes kind of worry about or wonder about whether those things impose themselves a bit too much on creativity. Yes, maybe. And at the same time, no, I don't think so because I think it's kind of all those genre labels and uh, and ideas, how to frame and box everything, it usually goes in cycles. It reaches a peak or an end where it really can't be boxed any further. <laughs> and then it loses interest because it reaches a point, or often a genre reaches a point where it's only repeating itself. People lose interest and you have to refine it or go in a completely different direction. And I think that's kind of built into the creative collective mindset of all of us. That's what I I think at least. I wouldn't claim it as a fact, but that's how I perceive it. I mean, you and me having this discussion being one part of exactly that. We're discussing labels and how and why we define them. And that discussion in itself is part of the involvement of it, I guess. These labels come from a collective contextualization, too, because we're in a society that evolves and that continues to change. The forces that shape that contextualization and therefore the labeling that comes from it also changes. So I think you're right in asserting that they aren't static, that the frames do shift like you alluded to. Yeah, absolutely. And they should. I mean, that's part of it. That's part of it. Being surprised and listening to something or seeing something, seeing any kind of creative output or hearing it, experiencing it and being surprised or being a little bit moved or a little bit rattled. I mean, that's a part of it, I think. Everything else is just boring. Everything else is Ikea. That's a fantastic note to sort of wrap up on. Do you have any sort of parting thoughts for the audience? Uh, I don't know. Come see shows. Please come to the shows. We want to play live again. <laughs> That's always it. That's always the focus, playing live. I'm looking forward to the next tour. I really am. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you live, and I'm sure listeners are as well. So, Espen, thank you for coming on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much.